I know I'm supposed to stay six feet away, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful sermon and song that bids us come to the most blessed place in the world, that we would sit at the feet of Jesus and there find a place for our burdens uh, to be taken away, a place for our prayers to be heard, our soul to be strengthened, and our vision of Christ to be made real. Lord, we pray that you will open up the scriptures today to us so that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And in so doing, sit at your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, from the annals of misplaced priorities, I share with you this embarrassing story. I went to serve or to study uh, in Bible college to prepare for the ministry back in the early 70s, but education was not my top priority. Perhaps I might say my top priority was enjoyment, to have fun. Oh, I was planning to study for the ministry and looking forward to that, but I didn't want that in any way to get into the way of enjoying myself. My major was Bible, but I also had this other major of simply taking it easy, hanging out with friends, just doing, I was on my own for the first time, and I enjoyed that freedom. Priorities are not found on our transcripts. I'm a Bible major. But priorities are found in the way we use our time. The great test of a priority is how you invest the time you have. Your activity exposes your priority. Say what you will. It's what you do that counts. And so I learned a new game, actually. I had never played soccer before, and that was part of the uh, curriculum. And so I gave myself to this sport, soccer. Loved playing it, practiced a lot. Used to go down to Clemson where we would watch their soccer team that was ranked top in the nation at that time. And we even won uh, the championship the year before. Here's a picture of uh, our championship team. That's me third from the right. Um, the hair is actually red if it were in color. But it was so long ago they didn't have color. <laughs> I'm guessing. You say you won the championship, what, of the ACC, the Atlantic Coast Conference? No. Well, maybe the SEC, the Southeastern Conference? No. It was the championship of the Bible College Intramural Program. <laughs> Not quite at the same level. But it was fun. I met Nancy during this time, but she was engaged to someone else, so that pursuit was avoided. But I still was involved in having a good time until midterms of my sophomore year when I had a wake-up call, and it was a big one. The teacher in my Bible talk, doctrines class wanted to talk to me after class, and, and so I went up to him and he said, Don, I just want you to know that you have an F in Bible doctrines midway through the semester. 
Now, that was a bit of a shock to me. I didn't expect it to be quite that low, although if he would have said you had an A, I would have really been shocked. He said, you're a Bible major, aren't you? Well, if you're a Bible major, you cannot use any class in your major if you don't at least get a C in the class. And funding for all of college now was uh, hanging in the balance because I had a leadership job on, on campus that was dependent on me having decent grades. That was part of the funding for college. The other part was the bank called Dad. My dad was born in 1921, which, by the way, is 100 years ago. He survived the Depression, then had a heart ailment and had to be in bed for months. When he gained his strength, went back to school and caught up, became an Eagle Scout, graduated from high school, went into World War II, and he was a staff sergeant, a kind of an engineer who worked behind the scenes on D-Day. I couldn't fool my dad. And he wasn't going to be too happy with an F. I didn't know if he knew. I was hoping the word had not gotten there yet. So I said to my teacher, okay, we've, we've, we've done eight weeks. We've got eight weeks more. I've got an F right now. What can I do? He said, you can only miss 12 points in the rest of the class. That's it. With all the tests we took over the eight weeks and the pop quizzes, Readings from a theological textbook, which was really good, but I just didn't have time for it with all my other priorities. And memorizing verses. I was not doing very well with that. You can only miss 12 points. If you miss 12 points, I can move your grade up from an F to a D. He said if you miss less than five points, you'll get an A for the second half, and I can move your grade up to a C. So I missed four points. And God said, I think you're not living up to your potential. After repenting and recommitting myself to Christ, I realized that my priorities had been so out of whack. And yet outwardly, I was at a Bible college to study for the ministry. I think one of the biggest problems in churches today is something we call misplaced priorities. A priority is something that you deem more important than other things. It becomes the main thing. It should become the center of your life, which determines how you say yes and no to everything else that revolves around your life. It was Charles Hummel who said our greatest danger in life is permitting the urgent things and the good things and the fun things to crowd out the most important things. Because we have no top priority. A life without priorities is like a ship on the sea without a rudder and a navigational plan. Oh, and we say... We love Christ, and we're serving Christ, but our time betrays us. If it's a priority in our life, we'll find a way to do it. If it's not a priority, and we say it is, we'll find an excuse. And that's why I love what Jesus says about priorities. Like in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, seek first. 
the kingdom of God. That's priority language, right? First. Above other things, this is what matters most. Whatever you fail to do, don't fail to do this. Seek the kingdom of God. Top priority. He continued on with that language in Matthew chapter 22, the portion of scripture that Pastor Doug read. When the Bible tells us that a lawyer, he was a Pharisee, an expert in the law, came to test Jesus with a question. Matthew 22. And the question was this. He thought he could trip Jesus up with these words. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. By the way, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's the first, and the second is likened to it. There's priority language, first and second. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, and that comes out of Leviticus chapter 19. Upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, these are the two major categories. Everything derives from these two. These do these two, and you cover all your bases. And according to Matthew 22, there was no discussion. Apparently, that shut the mouth of the arrogant Pharisee, and he turned and walked away because Jesus answered so well. But what I find interesting is that a similar story is given to us in Luke chapter 10. And this is where I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Now the question is not, Oh, by the way, same person asking the question, same type of person. I, I don't think it's the exact same narrative and story. I think it's just so similar. And this happened to Jesus on multiple occasions where people would ask him similar questions. His sermons would come out with similar stories. He told them at different times. So now the question from an expert in the law who was trying to test Jesus and trap him with a question. The question was this. How do I inherit eternal life? By the way, you cannot somehow earn eternal life. You have to inherit it. It's a gift. So he asked the right question. And Jesus responded by saying, well, what is written in the law? You're a lawyer. Tell me what you see. Great way to answer questions. Great way to deal with a question is with a question. What do you see? And the answer is identical to Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting the same two Old Testament uh, works of Moses, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But as the words were escaping his lips, I'm sure the lawyer thought to himself, oh no, I'm in trouble. Because I just said the most important thing in life is to love God and love your neighbor. And I'm not doing that. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and live. It's not that you do this to gain eternal life. You do this because you have eternal life. Do this and live. Now being on the spot and trapped by his own question, the lawyer tries to get out of it. Simply by asking another question. He wanted to justify himself. This is verse 29, Luke 10. He wanted to justify himself, so he said, who is my neighbor? Now, he didn't ask the question like he was ignorant. 
who's my neighbor? He asked the question like he was trying to be evasive. Um, <clears throat> who's my neighbor? Try to answer that one. By the way, you and I can kill the commandments of God by trying to redefine and define and define even deeper without doing what God tells us to do. After multiple definitions, we can erase any command in the word of God. Who's my neighbor? You might say, who's my neighbor? I live in a five-acre track in the middle of the land. No one's close to me. I don't have any neighbors. Therefore... I don't have any responsibility. I live in an apartment complex. Thousands of people. I can't know those people. None of us are neighborly. Nobody talks. This verse isn't for me. So I love the answer of Jesus. He's probing this guy with questions. And now he doesn't give him a theological definition of neighbor, which is what you and I often would do. He doesn't preach a sermon to him which is what pastors almost always do. He tells him a story. In fact, that's the way Jesus preaches a lot of the time. And you know the story as what? The Good Samaritan. We're not going to go into a depth, but uh, Jesus is talking about a man, probably a Jew, going from Jerusalem, thus probably a Jew, to Jericho, attacked by robbers, he, is, he loses uh, his, his money, stripped of his clothes, beaten, almost dead, lying on the side of the road. And every time we go to Israel, we look at this road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it is filled with turns and dips and crevices and bandits would hide everywhere. A priest happens to be going on that same road. And when he sees the guy, he passes on the other side. The other side might mean he actually went down a crevice and climbed a mountain to get away from him. And then a Levite passes by and does the same thing. Now these are two religious people, people you think would probably stop and help someone in need, but they did nothing, and I'm sure they had their reasons. They hated the guy because it was, uh, they didn't want to be condemned. Maybe there was blood loss and they couldn't go to the temple and do their religious things. But the shocker of the story is that a Samaritan who was hated by the Jews came by, saw the man, took pity on him, verse 33, and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, gave him oil and wine, put him on his own donkey, took him to an inn, paid the innkeeper the money needed for him to stay, and says, I'll return and pay whatever extra expense there is. And then Jesus said to the lawyer, which of these three do you think is a neighbor? Now that's a question, that's a multiple choice question you could almost always get right. But I, I'm not sure he was, he was very aggressive with it. He probably said, well, I guess. I guess the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. You know what the law says? Do it. You know who your neighbor is? Do it. Your neighbor is anyone who comes across your path, who has need. Have pity on them, even if they are your enemy, which would have been true in these cases, a Samaritan and a Jew. 
I find it interesting that true faith is active and real priorities demonstrate themselves by activity. Now what you have to remember in all of this is that Luke told us in chapter 1 when he put his gospel together he did it with intentionality. That is he arranged his stories so that they would be thematic and present a powerful message. It's not just one short paragraph or two. It's not one individual story. They're clung together like links in a chain for a purpose. So he goes from the Good Samaritan right to a, a rather interesting story that starts in verse 38. It's not really a story. It's an event and narrative in the life of Jesus where Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And they come to the village called Bethany where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now we know from John's Gospel that Mary and Martha are sisters and they have a brother named Lazarus. This is the MMNL. Jesus stops here a lot. He doesn't have to make a reservation. They expect him to come. They're glad he's here. They love him. He loves them, according to John chapter 11. By the way, and this happens later, there's another dinner at this house, John chapter 12, where Martha is serving and Mary anoints the feet of Jesus and Lazarus is eating and he's been raised from the dead. And John 12, 9 says there was a large crowd of people, of Jews, who found out Jesus was there and they came to the meal, not just because of Jesus, but they wanted to see the dead guy. Now, imagine that, peering through the window. Who is it? Which one? Is that going, there's the dead guy? He's eating. But this is before that. A common place for Jesus to enjoy hospitality. And the first character I want you to listen to is Martha. Let's look at Martha for a moment. Uh, the Bible tells us that there was a woman named Martha. And she opened up her home. She might have been the one who sent out the invitation. Or maybe it was just Jesus who knocked on the door and she said, come on in. She had a sister named Mary who was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he said. Verse 40 says, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made stop right there I mean if that's as far as you go in the story Martha is amazing I want you to know that if you read John chapter 11 the story when Lazarus dies Martha is depicted as a theologically astute strong believer who understands the last days and the power of the resurrection and has enough faith in Christ to say if you would have been here my brother would have not have died we're not talking about a spiritual wimp and she's working hard. She's fulfilling the Jewish law of hospitality. You have to take someone in if they come to your home. If you don't, that's like being an infidel. And she welcomes Jesus and I don't know how many others. Are the 12 with him at this point? I don't know. Are there more? I don't know. But come on in. It's a sizable crowd and she works hard. Working hard is a good thing. Serving Jesus is a great thing. She's making a meal for Jesus. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Every pastor in the world, if they looked at this portion of Scripture up to this point, would say, fill my church with Martha's. I've got enough people sitting 
and not doing anything. But that's what really began to distract her. Verse 40. Martha was distracted by all the preparation. You know, if you're really good at providing meals for others, sometimes it can be a point of pride. And when you have people over for a meal, everything has got to be perfect. And you outdo yourself, hoping that somewhere the compliment will come. I've never had food this good. I think Martha fell into that trap. She was distracted by all the preparations for a more elaborate meal than she should have been preparing for Jesus. More than what was necessary. And in doing so, she was doing it all by herself. By the way, what was she distracted from? We'll find out in a minute. Mary is lounging in the living room with the men, which, by the way, she shouldn't have been doing because that's against propriety. Women don't sit at the feet of a rabbi. Mary was doing it, and no one rebuked her. Martha could hear the occasional laughter from the living room and maybe a theological discussion and and the ah when someone got the point and the amen when someone agreed. And every time she heard something like that, it was like stabbing her again in the back. I'm doing all the work, and no one is helping me. And her bitterness began to boil up like hot water in a tea kettle until finally it pops. And she goes from being merely a distracted believer to being upset. She's upset with Mary. So the Bible tells us that she came to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? Tell her. To help me. And again, we do so poorly in understanding the emotional exegesis of a text like this. But the veins are popping out in her face, right? She's storming off with quick step and anger in her eye. And her voice is not calm. It is very tense. And she says, Jesus. Get my sister in here. Tell her to come in and help me. I don't know. She raised her. I don't know what she... But she was upset. Let's not make this a spiritual thing. (laughs) This is exactly what you and I do when we're not getting the help that we think we deserve. And we often pray to Jesus, Jesus, tell my wife to start doing this. Tell my children to start. Jesus, tell my husband. And Jesus listens. So she's upset with Jesus. And she attacks Mary for not helping. And she says, this isn't fair. When have you ever heard a sibling say about another sibling, this isn't fair? I mean, that happens all the time. But she's not only upset with Mary. Look, at she's upset with Jesus. Lord, don't you care? And that's the bottom line. Somehow, in our aggravation with life, We're upset with the people around us, but more upset that Jesus didn't protect us from this situation or deliver us or just wipe out every enemy we have. Lord, I'll tell you what you need to do. We're very good at telling Jesus what to do. She attacks Mary for not helping, and she attacks Jesus for not caring. (laughs) 
When's the last time you told Jesus he doesn't care? When he's told us repeatedly in the scriptures he does. Now, everyone in the room is silent. And they're looking up to Jesus. What's he going to say? He should say, right? I'm sorry. We just got so caught up in our talk. It's right. You shouldn't be working so hard all by yourself. I'll send Mary. He should say, I'll send all the disciples in and help. That's what Martha was hoping, something like that. But listen to Jesus now. The very first thing he does is to kindly rebuke Martha with a repetition of her name. Martha, Martha. That's a very endearing way to, to say, my, my dear, dear Martha. You're missing the most important thing. You were worried and upset about many things. Now notice Martha's distracted and worried and angry and upset about a ton of things. Dear Christian, in 2021, does this describe you? Upset with the people around you. Upset with the government over you. Upset with the Lord who is above you and doesn't seem to care. Listen to his rebuke. You're living a life of misplaced priorities. He says this about Mary. So he, he kindly rebukes Martha, but he clearly commends Mary for sitting and doing nothing. Not really doing nothing. You're worried and upset about many things, verse 42. But only one thing is needful or necessary. This is a very difficult portion of scripture. The translations go in different ways. Sometimes people think they're talking about the food. Don't get involved in so many courses. Only one simple course is fine. But that doesn't fit the rest of the context. Only one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen what is better. And that has nothing to do with food. What has Mary chosen that is better? Sitting instead of serving. Is serving good? Amen. But sitting is better. You know, we have that expression that we say sometimes, don't just sit there, do something. Jesus was saying, don't just do something, sit there. Mary understands who I am and the importance of my word and maybe even how little time I have left. And her top priority is to put Jesus first. There it is. What was Martha distracted from? Putting Jesus first by serving. So what I'm saying is the choices in life between good and evil are pretty easy. At least we know what we should do. But the choices between good and what's best are really challenging. And unless you have a priority to love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, you will not be equipped 
to decide between good and best. You'll go with the urgent. You'll go with your feelings. But you'll miss sitting at the feet of Jesus. What does it mean to sit at the feet of Jesus? Well, this phrase is used in Acts 22 of the Apostle Paul. Paul defended himself by saying, Indeed, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of uh, Cilicia, uh, but I was brought up in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel. Which means if you sit at the feet of a rabbi, you have been educated, thoroughly trained. To sit at the feet of Jesus means that you're soaking in his word. You're in his presence. What does it mean to sit at the feet of Jesus today? It means to open up the word and ask him to speak to you. And when he does, speak to him back through the word and from your burdened soul. Jesus needs to be top priority for you. That's what Paul said, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. Now quickly we go to the rest of it, and to die is gain, which is a fantastic phrase, but so let that first phrase soak into your heart and mind. For me to live is Christ. Paul made it the center of his heart, this top priority, Jesus. Jesus only. It was Paul who said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm alive. I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me so much that he gave himself more for me on the cross. I am going to love him so much that I'm going to give myself to him in life. You see, there's two important essentials. Number one, you need to see Jesus and trust him. You need to see who he is and see what he's done on the cross to save you. And you need to trust him. And then essential number two, you need to love him and follow him. Make him first place in your life. Martha was distracted by many things. Mary was devoted to one thing. Martha was concerned about physical food and Mary about spiritual food. Martha's focus was, what can I do for God, which is not bad, but a better one is, how can I be with God? And your service for Christ will never be satisfying unless it's built on a foundation of intimate fellowship with Jesus. You say, I don't know how to do that. Make it a priority. Carve out time every day in your schedule. You don't look at your schedule and prioritize it. You take your priorities and then schedule around it. If it's really a priority, activity will show it. You spend time with Jesus in the Word and spend time with Jesus in prayer and let that develop. And it'll be amazing to see what God will do in your life when Jesus is first. Does this all sound a little, little bit fuzzy still? Look at it this way. What is the greatest commandment? Love God with all of your heart and your neighbors yourself. And the second one 
Love your neighbors yourself. The story of the Good Samaritan tells you how to love your neighbors yourself. The story of Mary and Martha tells you how to love Jesus with all of your heart. Luke says, this is it. This is it. It's about your time. It's about surrender. And it's about Christ. Our priorities are so out of whack. Many years ago, there was a couple who loved the theater. They lived in Atlanta, and My Fair Lady was playing in Broadway. It was a hit. And so they planned months ahead to go to a Broadway showing of My Fair Lady. They planned their vacation around it, bought the tickets. When time came, they flew to New York, got in their hotel, and the next night, the next evening, was the performance. With excitement, they went to the box office and got their tickets and got their seats seven rows behind the orchestra, and the place was jammed, except one seat next to them was open. And they enjoyed everything, and it was wonderful, and the time came for the break. At the intermission, this guy leaned over and began a conversation with a woman that was sitting beyond the empty seat. He said, uh, are you enjoying the play? She said, oh, it's great. I love it. I, I bought the tickets months before and uh, couldn't wait to get here. And he said, tickets? Do you know the person who's not here? She said, yes, it's, I bought the tickets for my husband and I. And he died. The man said, well, couldn't you have brought a friend with you? To come and enjoy this play. She said, no, I couldn't because they're all back at his funeral service. (laughs) True story. (laughs) You think your priorities are out of whack? There's always someone you can point to who says, well, I'm not that bad. How bad are you in something other than Jesus? takes the first place in your heart. Top priority? Make Jesus first in your life. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in our life that can cause us shame and we need to repent. But when we do, you cleanse us from guilt and shame and make us new creatures in Christ so that we can go forward the past by the blood of Christ can be cleansed and the future can be changed if we're serious about making you our top priority Lord speak to hearts today including my own because it's so easy to get out of balance Maybe we find ourselves today putting so many other things ahead of you that we are distracted and upset and angry and worried about many things. Oh, come to us, dear Christ, in all your gracious and loving power, forgiving our sin and be Lord sovereign king ruler boss in our hearts let's take a few moments to deal with the Lord in prayer shall we
Dear Heavenly Father, please forgive us for being so busy. It's amazing to think <laughs> our, our, we crowd our lives with all these things that when we look back, we wonder how could we have been so foolish, misplaced priorities. Lord, help us to put you first place in our lives. You are truly the only one that matters. And in putting you first, all the other things find their rightful place. In Jesus' name, amen.